you want to turn to Romans 3, 1 through 8, that is our text, as she has said. Uh, we live in a culture where um, everything, it seems like, maybe, maybe at least more things than should be, seem like they're all relative. <clears throat> Very little is objective. Uh, we as a people are largely, through social media, encouraged to express all of our differing opinions on everything, which is super fun. We've come to believe that we can all have our own versions of truth, and somehow all of those versions can still remain true, which is crazy. But today's text reminds us that God is not relative. God is not subject to our personal feelings and tastes. That's what we're looking at this morning. God is not subject to our philosophical arguments and the things that we might want to be true that aren't true. He's not subject to the feelings and the tastes and the thoughts. There are not differing opinions on who God is or what God is about that can all be good and true at the same time. 2 Corinthians 4 says that the God of this world, that's a lowercase g, God of this world. That's Satan. That's the enemy, the Antichrist. It says that the God of this world wants to blind the minds of unbelievers from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And one way to blind them from that is to distort their view of God. Paul in Romans 3 is proclaiming truth. He's fielding objections and reminding humanity about our humanness and also reminding us about God's godness. This is a part of a larger portion of Scripture that addresses the sometimes uncomfortable subject of human depravity. Usually the ones most opposed to the concept of human depravity are the humans. So Paul addresses them accordingly. Paul has just made a statement in the previous chapter in Romans 2, and Pastor Shu covered this last week, but the statement was, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And you can imagine, if that's what you grew up with, that that would be a hard thing to hear. If you were a person who has been physically circumcised, you can imagine hearing, um, that's not actually what matters, that would, that would hit you in a way that was like, how can that not matter? Um, the church in Rome This group of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, it's made up of converted Gentiles who now proclaim Christ and Jews who also proclaim Christ have returned to the church in Rome and they're trying to figure out what life looks like together. Like how much does this heritage play into what this new thing is? And they're trying to figure out what does life look like together. And as Paul levels the playing field, explaining that a circumcised Jew is really no better off than a righteous Gentile, there's objections that arise. And so that's going to frame our time this morning. There's four objections, but actually only three answers, and we'll lean into that when we get there. The first objection is this. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? They're saying, if that's true, then what's the advantage of, of being a Jew? What advantage do we have, and what is the value of circumcision? One commentator explains that response like this. Jews everywhere were furious that Paul appeared to dissolve their distinctive advantage. What was the point of being the chosen people of God, marked off from the pagan world by the distinguishing mark of circumcision, if in the end a faithful Gentile might fare better than a Jew? What we're seeing here is a picture of Jewish privilege. 
You've heard the phrase, your privilege is showing. That's what's happening here in this moment, or perhaps even religious privilege. But we're the, we're the religious ones. We're the ones who are set apart. It's, it's as if they're saying, we understand that the Gentiles are grafted into our tree, but it's our tree, right? It's this view of what value do we have? I, I know that we're all in Christ, but what is the value of being a Jew? In Rome in particular, thoughts would have led them to put great stock in things like the priesthood. That's a way of life. That is, that is how life has been for them as they have known it. And to them, Paul seems to be undermining God's design. Whenever you think that someone is undermining God's design, it's a fitting thing to ask some questions and raise some objections. And at this point, they're saying, well, that seems to undermine God's design because God's design were that we were a people for his own possessions set apart. So how does this work? And Paul's answer to their question, what advantages did you have? And his answer is, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Interestingly, Paul says, to begin with, or first of all, but only mentions one thing. And the list doesn't pick up until later in chapters 9 through 11. And so it's kind of like some of our sermons sometimes. We get super excited about the first point, and then points 2 and 3 get come a little more quickly. Um, we can be guilty of such things, but it's interesting because here he says, to, to begin with, first of all, but then he just mentions one thing, and the thing that he mentions is that you have been entrusted with the oracles of God. You have the scriptures. That is your advantage. And I don't want us to gloss over this this morning because most of us have um, the Word of God sitting in our lap right now as we're listening to the sermon. And something that we can lose sight of is that you have the Word of God sitting in your lap this morning as we consider these texts. It's, it's from God and it is no small thing. And Paul, in response to their objection, he said, you have been entrusted with the oracles of God. In Romans 1, we saw that any human being can step outside and look at the stars, look at the birds, consider the lilies. Any human being can look outside, can go outside and know that there is a creator and it's not us and that there is a God and we are, we are subject to him as creation. And anyone can generally know that. Romans 2 says every human being can also look inside and know that a law is written on their heart. So when you do something wrong, you're like, why does it feel wrong? Why do I know that it's wrong? Or you're trying to wrestle with things like, is this wrong? Is this right? Is this good or is this bad? Those concepts aren't ours. We didn't make that up. That comes from God. It says he wrote his law on our heart. So we can go outside and see God generally. We can look inside and know that there is a God and there's a law in our hearts. But it was very specifically to the Jews that God made himself known. There were no creatures, there were no animals, there were no fish that knew God in this way. He made himself known. What advantage do you have? You learned from God about God. From his mouth, this is an oracle. He gave you his words when no one else had them. And what did they learn when he gave them his words? The oracles of God, when he entrusted those to them, what did they learn? You learned that he is a compassionate and a gracious God. You can go outside and look at creation and know that there's a God, but, but there can be some fear because you're just part of the created part of it. But when he reveals himself, he reveals that he's a compassionate and a gracious God. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That was entrusted to them. Maintaining love to thousands 
and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So we find out also from God's Word as He reveals the oracles of God that there's a thing called wickedness and rebellion and sin. And what we're learning in Romans 3 that we're getting to the point that we've been building up to is all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So it's good to know that there can be forgiveness. We wouldn't know that if He hadn't revealed it through His oracles. You learn that He is the Alpha and the Omega, that He is the Almighty, that He is a good shepherd, that he leads you beside still waters, that he makes you to lie down in green pastures, not just for the nourishment, but even for the rest. There's this reality when we learn about God from God, that if he's in charge of our lives and we're submitting to him, that there should be a, a beautiful calm and peace in our lives that is not always indicative of the culture we're a part of. We know that because God revealed that. We know that he's all-knowing, we're not. We know that he's all-powerful, we're not. We know that he is righteous, that he is all present, he is sovereign, he is unchanging. He's not capricious like us. Sometimes you don't know what version of me you're going to get because sometimes I'm moody. He's not. He's unchanging. He, his love cannot be improved upon at all, and we learn that because he told us about it. He is holy. He is just. He is righteous. He created us, and he has expectations for us. If he hadn't shown that to us, we would just be trying to figure it out on our own. But we have direction from the Almighty because he entrusted it to the Jews. He has a plan for the world. He will judge. And he will create a new heavens and a new earth. None of us here today and no non-Jew in all of history would know those things if they were not first entrusted to the Jews by God. So Paul's response to them, what value is it to be a Jew? He says, you have the oracles of God. You know God because he made himself known to you. And you might think to yourself, Paul, that was a pretty good argument, right? That's a pretty good response. Maybe there's no further objections, but there are further objections. Number two, what if some were unfaithful? So God's entrusted the oracles to his people, and it says, what if some were unfaithful? And then the question does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? I want you to hear where this line of, of, of objections is going. Is it possible that God gave his oracles to people and people didn't respond the right way and they did things with the oracles and the, with the ways that they, they were unrighteous, they didn't do what they should have done? Is it possible then that their faithlessness nullifies the faithfulness of God? Is it possible that God is heeding to us figuring it out the right way based on what he said, and if not, is then God faithless? And answer number two, he says, by no means. That can't be overstated. That's like not on your life, not in a million years, absolutely not. Could that be the case, that our sin somehow makes it so that God's not faithful? And he says specifically, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This argument of it being God's fault is literally as old as mankind. So God gave his oracles, his expectations for his creation, and then creation blames God when it goes wrong. It might sound something like this. The woman that you gave me caused me to sin. It was the first man, it was the first one created, and he, he took that back to God. 
you, you gave me the one, the one when you gave me caused me to sin. So often the argument for humans caught in sin and facing judgment is, you made me like this. You could have changed this. You made me to think like this. You made me to feel like this. You made me with these strong desires, and it could have been different. And we tend to blame the Creator. Paul is pointing out that we compound our guilt when we misuse God's good gifts. Or to say it in a Romans 1 kind of a way, we compound our guilt when we trade the truth about God for a lie and worship creation rather than the Creator. One commentator said, To carry back to God, the blame for our abuse of these gifts is as perverse as it is common. To misuse the gifts and then say, well, maybe that's God's fault, is to take back to Him, to carry back to God the blame for our abusive gifts. And he says it's as perverse as it is common, but because it is common. And sometimes in our, in our culture, we have a tendency to think because things become common, maybe they're less perverse. And this is a really good reminder for us that that's not the case. To answer their objection, Paul actually goes to Psalm 51.4 when they're saying, well, if some were unfaithful, does that make God unfaithful? And he goes to Psalm 51.4 where David has been caught with Bathsheba in the horrible sin of adultery, and he doesn't only commit adultery, he also commits murder. And the nature of the song that is written isn't, well, God, you gave me these impulses. You could have caused her to bathe inside. Her husband could have loved and appreciated her more. That wasn't the nature of the psalm. The nature of the psalm was, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's sitting there going, though every man be a liar, you are true. This is where David has come face to face with what we might call moral inevitability. The sermon title today is Jewish Privilege, Human Depravity, and Moral Inevitability. And I'm not going to lie, it's like my favorite sermon title ever. It's a little heavy, but I like it. The moral inevitability he's coming face to face with is the reality that God's not wrong. God God isn't wishy-washy, up and down, Morals don't change with God. There is a moral inevitability that David has finally come to grips with, and he realizes that there's nothing that he can say in his own defense. There is no defense that says, well, if I failed, didn't God kind of fail? There's nothing that David can say in his own defense. He's simply left with, God is right, David is wrong. There's a humility about it, and Paul goes and grabs that, to respond to this objection of, is it possible that God's wrong? He's like, no, look what David said. David said, God's right, David's wrong. And that sounds like a pretty good answer to that objection, but there's still yet another objection that's even more evil. Objection number three, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict his wrath on us? I'm well aware that we didn't show up this morning thinking about these objections and hoping that someone would talk about them. 
But this objection, we need to make sure we lean into this. Let me say it again. Objection three. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, if our evil living serves to to show the righteousness of God, he's such a good judge. What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. If you're sitting there going, hmm, good point. No, not good point. This is flatly evil. This is stupid. I tell my kids, don't say the word stupid unless you're talking about sin, because sin makes you stupid. This is stupid. This is not okay. This is flatly evil. I want you all to understand, Paul is not creating a straw man, just this fake thing, and just kicking him around to, to make it look like he's smart. This is a real objection. Paul has traveled, and he has, he has reasoned with people uh, in the synagogues, in the temple, he, is, he, is, he has heard the arguments. He himself was a Pharisee, and he knows the kind of thinking that tries to take the law and twist it to make it to where what I'm doing that's wrong is okay. He's familiar with it. He knows human beings, and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. The thought is, I sin, I am unrighteous. God gets glory for being a righteous judge against my sin. Doesn't that make God unrighteous for inflicting his wrath on us when we're only showing the the righteousness that he is as a judge? It's like saying we know that Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. But you know what? Maybe we could figure out a way to live to where I can do what I want when I want to do it, and the unrighteousness that suppresses truth, I could live a whole life of suppressing truth, because at the end of the day, maybe that would just make God look like such a great judge. Is there a life that's like that that I can choose? And this is, off, this is just about as off the rails as you can get. Paul's embarrassed by the suggestion. You notice in the parentheses, he says, I speak in a human way. It's almost like he's saying, I don't even want to be associated with such an evil heretical statement about the Almighty. He wants to be careful with it. He's presenting the argument in a diatribe that's like real clear, but he's like, but hold on, those aren't my words. Like I'm speaking in a human way. This is what happens when we go down the slippery slope. So the question is, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. And the answer is, By no means. Again, absolutely not. Not on your life. Not in a million years. May it never be. For then how could God judge the world? He's coming back to what they all agree on. For how could God then judge the world? Meaning, if God cannot judge Jews for such behavior, and more importantly, the the secret things, the heart behind the behavior, if he can't judge them because they have some sort of privilege, how can he judge anybody? Because if they can use that argument, well, when I sin, God gets glory. So everybody could use that argument when I sin, God gets glory. And he kind of leans in and says, because the one thing we can all agree on, the undeniable truth that we can agree on, is God's going to judge, right? He, co- he comes back and centers it on something that they would agree on. He's like, God's, are you saying that God's not going to judge? We all agree that God's definitely going to judge. So your line of argumentation would mean that he can't really judge anybody. But we all agree that he will, right? And then the final objection is made. 
But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Off the rails. Why not do evil that good may come? He's kind of turning it on him and saying, well, you guys think that I'm sinning by what I'm saying, so why don't I just sin all the more so that through my evil good may come? And he's showing how utterly empty and ridiculous that argument is by saying, why not do evil that good may come? And he even says, as some slanderously charge us with saying. So this isn't just an experience he's had. It's actually an accusation he's received that he's saying we can do evil that good may come. And this is off the rails. This is out of touch with reality. This is evil. When you go to thinking like this, it shows more of a depraved or a debased mind. To think that there's any way that you could do evil that good may come is so backwards from what our faith proclaims and what the Lord has revealed in his oracles. And the response that Paul gives is not available. Not available. It's kind of that moment where you, someone makes such an outlandish argument where you're like, I'm not even going to respond to that. That's what he says. But it's not just not available. It's a, it's a fairly ominous statement. We're supposed to see it for what it is. It's an ominous statement of their condemnation is just. It's like saying, did you hear that? That's, the judgment on that will be perfectly righteous. It is so contrary to who God has revealed himself to, de- to us that, that we could live in an evil way and somehow bring good about that. And that's our goal now. He's saying their condemnation is just. Why is their condemnation just? Because it flies in the face of the sacrifice of Christ, first of all. Christ died after living a perfect life. There's no hope for sinners outside of putting our faith in Christ, receiving it as a free gift. But to say that, you know, there's a way of living where you can do evil that maybe good would come is to spit on Christ while he's still on the cross. And then as you consider Christ's teaching, it also flies in the, in the face of the teachings of Christ. It's like this would, that kind of a life would say, well, Jesus' sacrifice wasn't all that important when it was utterly important for a lost humanity. And then it would fly in the face of the things that Jesus taught. When he taught about sin, he said, if your eye causes you to sin, he doesn't say close it, he says gouge it out. If your, if your arm causes you to sin, hack it off. That's, that's what he teaches. He, he's, he's using big language to say the pursuit of sin, the pursuit of holiness, the, the putting the flesh to death, to put to death the deeds of the flesh is so important. You should think of it as an eye-gouging, arm-hacking pursuit of holiness. So when you hear, why not do evil that good may come? It is contrary to Christ. So I think that we've seen what it says and what it means, and now we can ask, what is, how does this work and what does it mean to us? So we're going to look at six application points this morning. Three are in the don'ts and three are in the, in the do's. And the first one is don't assume religious privilege. Don't assume religious privilege. A lot of us can point to our experience. I've, I've grown up Baptist you could say something along the lines of, well, I've gone to the same Baptist church for 58 years. I'm not 58. This is someone else. Um, 58 years, and I sang in the choir for, you know, over half that. And I've got it written in the front of my Bible when I made my decision. 
And you can just start pointing to the religious things that you've experienced rather than just go, like entrusting yourself to Christ. And what happens when we begin to assume religious privilege is with non-religious people come in, we can kind of look down at them from our high seat up here. What do you mean they could be just as close to Jesus as I currently am? I've been doing this for 50 years. That, that is not a healthy perspective at all. What do you mean that someone who hasn't had any religion their whole life, but they've heard about Jesus, they could come in and they could be just, that we could be standing equal to the, the ground's level at the foot of the cross? I don't know if I like that. And I, the, the, the encouragement is don't assume religious privilege. Don't assume that you're owed something or you have a standing higher than anybody else. We're all humans and the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Christ is mighty to save and we all need it. And religious privilege can cause us to be upset about things like people being in our seats and things like that. Number two, don't assume that God is subject to your feelings. We live in a culture where the truthfulness by which we see feelings has just been elevated a whole lot in the last couple decades. Where it's like if I feel it, it must be true. And I think what Scripture reminds us of this morning is just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it is a certain way. I like the way one um, smart pastor put it. He said, stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. We don't let our feelings govern us. But one of the predominant messages in our culture is no one can tell you how to feel. Well, we all feel ways that are wicked and evil at times. And it's good for there to be some standard. Otherwise, this thing goes even more off the rails than you could ever imagine. But don't assume that God's subject to your feelings. Just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it is a certain way. I've shared this before, but Paul Tripp has a wonderful quote that reminds us that our view of ourselves is as accurate as a carnival mirror, and we need one another to hold up the mirror of God's Word so that we can know who He is, and we can know who we are, and we can know how to live accordingly. So don't assume that God is subject to your feelings. Trust Him with your feelings. Go to Him and say, God, is this right? If not, can you, can you guide me into a way of truth? Don't blame God for your sin. As outlandish as it sounds in the, the diatribe that Paul's walking through in chapter 3, looking at this morning, um, it's not hard to blame God for your sins. I mean, you, can, you know he's all-powerful. You know he's mighty. You know that there's no one above him. And sometimes it can lead you to the wrong conclusion that maybe, maybe he's the problem. And church, the reminder for us this morning is he's not. He's God. We don't blame God for our sins. What I would encourage you to do is trust him and confess your sins to him and turn from those sins and walk in repentance. Some people think that like the good life is actually when you can sin and do whatever you want. But I, I've like talked to people that have done that, and they're empty. There's a sadness and an emptiness when people just do what they want when they want to do, and they realize that there actually is a better way. But the good life isn't just doing what you want when you want. The good life is found in being as close to God as you can possibly be. And when it comes to your sin, it's not his fault. He brings the solution. He, he pours out his wrath on his son. Christ is a propitiation, a wrath absorber, that we don't have to experience that wrath because we put our faith in Christ. Trust him with that. If you have a tendency to blame God for the things that aren't 
the way you want them to be or for the sins that you are struggling with, I encourage you to trust him. He's never worthy of blame. He's only worthy of worship. Remember, his love can't be improved upon in any way. He's never wronged you. Number four is treasure the oracles of God. Treasure them. If you misplace your Bible, find it quickly. Don't say, ah, it's been gone for two weeks, I'll use my phone. Like, like treasure the word of God in, in as much as like you treasure anything. You can't say something is a great value if it's actually not and you're not utilizing the value of it. And so I want to encourage you, spend time in the Word daily. Don't assume that you can just show up on a Sunday and have some guy preach from some verses and that's sufficient. It's not. It's important, but it's not sufficient. Treasure the Word of God. The psalmist would, would pray, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And he was praying for the ability to treasure it, to observe it, and to know it. I would encourage you to do the same. Know that there's more to, part of treasuring it is knowing that there's more there. I teach fourth and fifth graders on Sunday nights. Team Howard, if any of y'all are in here, right? Okay, they're not. But uh, we call it Team Howard. It's a Howard Hendricks study on how to study the Bible. And there's, I'm wanting them to see some of the things that kind of creep in that might cause us not to value the Bible the way that we should. So we're currently working through Psalm 23 and learning how to ask questions of the text. And so some of the students had actually, and I hoped it worked out like this, it was wonderful, um, they've actually already memorized Psalm 23. So we're about to start studying it. They're like, well, I've already memorized it. I'm like, okay. So the goal then is to see how many questions we can ask of Psalm 23 because that's part of observation. It's like, what do I see? What are the questions? What, what do I need? What's repeated? What's emphasized? All these things, all these tools in the toolbox. And I noticed a pattern for the ones who had memorized it. They're like, well, I don't have any questions. It's like, what do you mean you don't have any questions? Didn't I just tell you I memorized it? And there was this funny moment where I was like, hold on. So you think because you memorized it, you got it. And the reality that we were able to lean into is no, no matter how deep you go, it's, it is deeper and there is more treasure to be found and we should keep digging. And there's so much encouragement when we do. And we got to be careful not to let the familiarity, even of certain passages, cause us to sort of have a contempt. Like familiarity breeds contempt. We got to be really careful with that. So to treasure the word is to never assume that, oh, well, I've graduated from those verses and I'm going to move on to other verses. And it's a good encouragement this morning. Next is defend the oracles of God. Defend the oracles of God. This would be apologetics and evangelism. Defend it. If, you, if it's valuable, you have to defend it. You have to step into the conversation. And one of the things I love about what Paul has shown us this morning is he stepped into the conversation with accuracy and with truth and even the respect that was fitting for the moment. He didn't misrepresent his opposition. He stepped into it, and he said, here are what the objections are. And he, his goal was to state them as clearly as he could so that he would state them in such a way that those objecting would say, yep, that's what I believe. And that's an important step when you're defending the oracles of God. You don't want to just create, I said it wasn't a straw man, you don't want to create sort of fake people that have fake arguments that just help you sound smart. And so he, he leans into it, and he defends the oracles of God Something you've probably heard around here when we're talking about details, especially if you serve with us, is you can't manage what you don't measure. And this I would offer just as a way to help remember it is you can't defend what you don't treasure. It's hard to defend it if you don't treasure it. The more you treasure it, the more natural it will be to 
to defend it and to help others to really embrace the truth about God that He has revealed. Then finally this morning, just consider your undeniable truths. We used to do this with catechism, right? That you would, there was questions, you know, who is God? He's the creator of everything. What did God create? Everything created. Why did he do that? For, our, for his glory. For his glory. What's your created purpose? For his glory. There's these things that, that kids would grow up with that would help them to have these undeniable truths they could always come back to. And what I want you to see this morning is Paul went back to the undeniable truth. God will judge, right? We believe God will judge, and that helped to take his defense of their objection back to the reality that they were straying from as they allowed their thoughts to rule them and their emotions to rule them. Consider your undeniable truths. Consider if you're sharing those undeniable truths with your children. At Crosspoint, we believe parents are the main disciple makers in the lives of their kids. So whatever your, those undeniable truths are, those things that you go back to in those hard moments where maybe there's an objection, maybe there's a bit of a confusion, share those with your children. Make sure they have their own undeniable truths out of the word that steady them and stable them in moments like this. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time this morning. We're thankful for um, how blessed we are. Uh, We're thankful for this reality that you have revealed yourself uh, to to us and that we can know you only because you have made yourself known. Lord, we are humbled by the word this morning. I pray that we would um, submit to it. I pray that when it comes to our sin, we would confess it and trust you. I pray that we would treasure your word, that we would know that life is much more lovely and commendable and excellent, worthy of praise when we are living according to your word that you have given us. Help us to cry out like the psalmist that you would open our eyes to understand it more, the wonderful things that are there. Help help us to see them in their wonderfulness. We love you, Lord. We humble ourselves before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.